0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Black Clock Audio Tales. This is March 2021. This month we're going to be doing Anne Radcliffe. I don't know if we're going to have any guests
1: to talk about the originator of the what I like to call the Scooby-Doo ending, and gothic literature as we know it, and motherfucking Radcliffe. All right. Uh, Except for that intro, uh, the rest of this should be family-friendly, and I hope you enjoy it. Remember, Black Clock Audio Tales, uh, radio-free Oleander. You can also check out Articulate Warbling from time to
2: time.
3: The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe, Volume 1, Chapter 5 While in the rosy veil, love breathed his infant sighs from anguish free. Thompson Saint-Aubert, sufficiently restored by a night's repose to pursue his journey, set out in the morning with his family and Valancourt for Roussillon, which he hoped to reach before nightfall. The scenes through which they now passed were as wild and romantic as any they had yet observed, with this difference, that beauty every now and then softened the landscape into smiles. Little woody recesses appeared among the mountains, covered with bright verdure and flowers, or a pastoral valley opened its grassy bosom in the shade of the cliffs with flocks and herds loitering along the banks of a rivulet that refreshed it with perpetual green. Saint-Aubert could not repent the having taken this fatiguing road, though he was this day also frequently obliged to alight to walk along the rugged precipice, and to climb the steep and flinty mountain. The wonderful sublimity and variety of the prospects repaid him for all this, and the enthusiasm with which they were viewed by his young companions heightened his own, and awakened a remembrance of all the delightful emotions of his early days, when the sublime charms of nature were first unveiled to him. He found great pleasure in conversing with Valancourt, and in listening to his ingenuous remarks. The fire and simplicity of his manners seemed to render him a characteristic figure in the scenes around them, and Saint-Aubert discovered in his sentiments the justness and the dignity of an elevated mind, unbiased by intercourse with the world. He perceived that his opinions were formed rather than imbibed, for more the result of thought than of learning. Of the world he seemed to know nothing, for he believed well of all mankind, and this opinion gave him the reflected image of his own heart. Saint Aubert, as he sometimes lingered to examine the wild plants in his path, often looked forward with pleasure to Emily and Valancourt as they strolled on together. He, with a countenance of animated delight, pointing to her attention some grand feature of the scene, and she, listening and observing, with a look of tender seriousness that spoke the elevation of her mind. They appeared like two lovers who had never strayed beyond these their native mountains whose situation had secluded them from the frivolities of common life, whose ideas were simple and grand, like the landscapes among which they moved, and who knew no other happiness than in the union of pure and affectionate hearts. Saint-Aubert smiled and sighed at the romantic picture of felicity his fancy drew, and he sighed again to think that nature and simplicity were so little known to the world as that their pleasures were thought romantic. The world, said he, pursuing the strain of thought, ridicules a passion which it seldom feels, its scenes and its interests, distract the mind, deprave the taste, corrupt the heart, and love cannot exist in a heart that has lost the meek dignity of innocence. Virtue and taste are nearly the same. For virtue is little more than active taste, and the most delicate affections of each combine in real love. How, then, are we to look for love in great cities, where selfishness, dissipation, and insincerity supply the place of tenderness, simplicity, and truth? It was near noon when the travellers, having arrived at a piece of steep and dangerous road, alighted to walk. The road wound up an ascent that was clothed with wood, and instead of following the carriage, they entered the refreshing shade. A dewy coolness was diffused upon the air, which with the bright verdure of turf that grew under the trees, the mingled fragrance of flowers and the balm, thyme, and lavender that enriched it, and the grandeur of the pines, beech, and chestnuts that overshadowed them, rendered this a most delicious retreat. Sometimes the thick foliage excluded all view of the country, at others it admitted some partial catches of the distant scenery, and gave hints to the imagination to picture landscapes more interesting, more impressive than any that had been presented to the eye. The wanderers often lingered to indulge in these reveries of fancy. The pauses of silence, such as had formerly interrupted the conversation of Valancourt and Emily, were more frequent today than ever. Valancourt often dropped suddenly from the most animating vivacity into fits of deep musing, and there was, sometimes, an unaffected melancholy in his smile, which Emily could not avoid understanding, for her heart was interested in the sentiment it spoke. saint Aubert was refreshed by the shades, and they continued to saunter under them, following, as nearly as they could guess, the direction of the road, so they perceived that they had totally lost it. They had continued near the brow of the precipice, allured by the scenery it exhibited, while the road wound far away over the cliff above. Valancourt called loudly to Michael, but heard no voice except his own echoing among the rocks, and his various efforts to regain the road were equally unsuccessful. While they were thus circumstanced, they perceived a shepherd's cabin, between the boles of the trees at some distance, and Valancourt bounded on first to ask assistance. When he reached it, he saw only two little children at play on the turf before the door. He looked into the hut, but no person was there, and the eldest of the boys told them that their father was with his flocks, and their mother was gone down into the vale, but would be back presently. As he stood, considering what was further to be done, on a sudden he heard Michael's voice roaring forth most manfully among the cliffs above, till he made their echoes ring. Valancourt immediately answered the call and endeavoured to make his way through the thicket that clothed the steeps, following the direction of the sound. After much struggle over brambles and precipices, he reached Michael, and at length prevailed with him to be silent and to listen to him. The road was at a considerable distance from the spot where Saint-Aubert and Emily were, the carriage could not easily return to the entrance of the wood, and, since it would be very fatiguing for Saint-Aubert to climb the long and steep road to the place where it stood now, Valancourt was anxious to find a more easy ascent by the way he had himself passed. Meanwhile, Sadobert and Emily approached the cottage, and rested themselves on a rusted bench, fastened between two pines, which overshadowed it till Valancourt, whose steps they had observed, should return. The eldest of the children desisted from his play, and stood still to observe the strangers, while the younger continued his little gambols and teased his brother to join in them. Saint-Aubert looked with pleasure upon this picture of infantine simplicity, till it brought to his remembrance his own boys, whom he had lost about the age of these, and their lamented mother, and he sunk into a thoughtfulness which Emily observing, she immediately began to sing one of those simple and lively airs he was so fond of, and which she knew how to give with the most captivating sweetness. Saint-Aubert smiled on her through his tears took her hand and pressed it affectionately, and then tried to dissipate the melancholy reflections that lingered in his mind. While she sung, Valancourt approached, who was unwilling to interrupt her, and paused at a little distance to listen. When she had concluded, he joined the party and told them that he had found Michael as well as a way by which he thought they could ascend the cliff to the carriage. He pointed to the woody steps above, which Saint-Aubert surveyed with an anxious eye, he was already wearied by his walk, and this ascent was formidable to him. He thought, however, it would be less toilsome than the long and broken road, and he determined to attempt it; but Emily, ever watchful of his ease, proposing that he should rest and dine before they proceeded further, Valancourt went to the carriage for the refreshments deposited there. On his return, he proposed removing a little higher up the mountain, to where the woods opened upon a grand and extensive prospect. And thither they were preparing to go when they saw a young woman join the children and caress and weep over them. The travellers, interested by her distress, stopped to observe her. She took the youngest of the children in her arms, and perceiving the strangers, hastily dried her tears and proceeded to the cottage. Jean Aubert, on inquiring the occasion of her sorrow, learned that her husband, who was a shepherd, and lived here in the summer months to watch over the flocks he led to feed upon these mountains, had lost, on that preceding night, his little all. A gang of gypsies, who had for some time infested the neighborhood, had driven away several of his master's sheep. Jacques, added the shepherd's wife, had saved a little money, and had bought a few sheep with it. And now they must go to his master for those that are stolen." And what is worse than all, his master, when he comes to know how it is, will trust him no longer with the care of his flocks, for he is a hard man. And then what is to become of our children?" The innocent countenance of the woman, and the simplicity of her manner in relating her grievance, inclined Saint-Aubert to believe her story. And Valancourt, convinced that it was true, asked eagerly what was the value of the stolen sheep, on hearing which he turned away with a look of disappointment. St. Aubert put some money into her hand, Emily, too, gave something from her little purse, and they walked towards the cliff. But Valancourt lingered behind, and spoke to the shepherd's wife, who was now weeping with gratitude and surprise. He inquired how much money was yet wanting to replace the stolen sheep, and found that it was a sum very little short of all he had about him. He was perplexed and distressed. "'This sum, then,' said he to himself, would make this poor family completely happy. It is in my power to give it, to make them completely happy. But what is to become of me? How shall I contrive to reach home with the little money that will remain?" For a moment he stood unwilling to forego the luxury of raising a family from ruin to happiness, yet considering the difficulties of pursuing his journey with so small a sum as would be left. While he was in this state of perplexity, the shepherd himself appeared. His children ran to meet him. He took one of them in his arms, and with the other clinging to his coat, came forward with a loitering step. His forlorn and melancholy look determined Valancourt at once. He threw down all the money he had, except a very few Louis, and bounded away after St. Aubert and Emily, who were proceeding slowly up the steep. Valancourt had seldom felt his heart so light as at this moment. His gay spirits danced with pleasure. Every object around him appeared more interesting or beautiful than before. Saint Aubert observed the uncommon vivacity of his countenance. What has pleased you so much? said he. Oh, what a lovely day! replied Valancourt. How brightly the sun shines! How pure is this air! What enchanting scenery! It is indeed enchanting, said Saint Aubert, whom early experience had taught to understand the nature of Valancourt's present feeling." What pity that the wealthy, who can command such sunshine, should ever pass their days in gloom, in the cold shade of selfishness. For you, my young friend, may the sun always shine as brightly as at this moment. May your own conduct always give you the sunshine of benevolence and reason united. Valancourt, highly flattered by this compliment, make no reply but by a smile of gratitude. We continued to wind under the woods between the grassy knolls of the mountain, and as they reached the shady summit which he had pointed out, the whole party burst into an exclamation. Behind the spot where they stood, the rock rose perpendicularly in a massy wall to a considerable height, and then branched out into overhanging crags. Their grey tints were well contrasted by the bright hues of the plants and wildflowers that grew in their fractured sides and were deepened by the gloom of the pines and cedars that waved above. The steeps below, over which the eye passed abruptly to the valley, were fringed with thickets of alpine shrubs, and lower still appeared the tufted tops of the chestnut wood that clothed their base among which peeped forth the shepherd's cottage, just left by the travellers, with its bluish smoke curling high in the air. On every side appeared the majestic summits of the Pyrenees some exhibiting tremendous cracks of marble whose appearance was changing every instant as the varying lights fell upon their surface others still higher displaying only snowy points while their lower steeps were covered almost invariably with forests of pine larch and oak that stretched down to the vale this was one of the narrow valleys that opened from the pyrenees into the country of Roussillon, and whose green pastures and cultivated beauty a decided and a wonderful contrast to the romantic grandeur that environs it. Through a vista of the mountains appeared the lowlands of Roussillon, tinted with the blue haze of distance, as they united with the waters of the Mediterranean, where on a promontory, which marked the boundary of the shore, stood a lonely beacon, over which were seen circling flights of sea-fowl. Beyond appeared now and then a stealing sail, white with the sunbeam, and whose progress was perceivable by its approach to the lighthouse. Sometimes, too, was seen a sail so distant that it served only to mark the line of separation between the sky and the waves. On the other side of the valley, immediately opposite to the spot where the travelers rested, a rocky pass opened toward Gascony. Here no sign of cultivation appeared. The rocks of granite that screened the glen rose abruptly from their base, and stretched their barren points to the clouds, unburied with woods, and uncheered even by a hunter's cabin. Sometimes, indeed, a gigantic larch threw its long shade over the precipice, and here and there a cliff reared on its brow a monumental cross, to tell the traveller the fate of him who had ventured thither before. This spot seemed the very haunt of Van and Emily, As she looked down upon it, almost expected to see them stealing out from some hollow cave to look for their prey. Soon after, an object not less terrific struck her. A gibbet, standing on a point of rock near the entrance of the pass, and immediately over one of the crosses she had before observed. These were hieroglyphics that told a plain and dreadful story. She forbore to point it out to St. Aubert. But it threw a gloom over her spirits, and made her anxious to hasten forward, that they might with certainty reach Roussillon before nightfall. It was necessary, however, that Saint Aupair should take some refreshment, and seating themselves on the short dry turf, they opened the basket of provisions while By breezy murmurs cooled, broad o'er their heads the verdant cedars wave, And high palmettos lift their graceful shade, they draw Ethereal soul There drink reviving gales profusely breathing from the piney groves and veils of fragrance. There at a distance hear the roaring floods and balanacs. Thompson saint Aubert was revived by rest and by the serene air of this summit, and Valancourt was so charmed with all around and with the conversation of his companions that he seemed to have forgotten he had any further to go. Having concluded their simple repast, They gave a long farewell look to the scene, and again began to ascend. Saint-Aubert rejoiced when he reached the carriage, which Emily entered with him. But Valancourt, willing to take a more extensive view of the enchanting country into which they were about to descend than he could do from a carriage, loosened his dogs, and once more bounded with them along the banks of the road. He often quitted it for points that promised a wider prospect the slow pace at which the mules travelled allowed him to overtake them with ease. Whenever a scene of uncommon magnificence appeared, he hastened to inform saint Aubert, who, though he was too much tired to walk himself, sometimes made the chaise wait while Emily went to the neighbouring cliff. It was evening when they descended the lower Alps that bind Roussillon and form a majestic barrier round that charming country, leaving it open only on the east to the Mediterranean. The gay tints of cultivation once more beautified the landscape, for the lowlands were colored with the richest hues, which a luxuriant climate and an industrious people can awaken into life. Groves of orange and lemon perfumed the air, their ripe fruit glowing among the foliage. While sloping to the plains, extensive vineyards spread their treasures. Beyond these, woods and pastures and mingled towns and hamlets stretched towards the sea On his bright surface gleamed many a distant sail, while over the whole scene was diffused the purple glow of evening. This landscape, with the surrounding Alps, did indeed present a perfect picture of the lovely and the sublime, of beauty sleeping in the lap of horror. The travellers, having reached the plain, proceeded between hedges of flowering myrtle and pomegranate to the town of Arles, where they proposed to rest for the night. They met with simple but neat accommodation, and would have passed a happy evening after the toils and the delights of this day, had not the approaching separation thrown a gloom over their spirit. It was Saint Aubert's plan to proceed on the morrow to the borders of the Mediterranean, and travel along its shores into Languedoc, and Valancourt, since he was now nearly recovered, and had no longer a pretense for continuing with his new friends, resolved to leave them here. Saint-Aubert, who was much pleased with him, invited him to go further, but did not repeat the invitation, and Valancourt had resolution enough to forego the temptation of accepting it, that he might prove himself not unworthy of the favour. On the following morning, therefore, they were to part, Saint-Aubert to pursue his way to Languedoc and Valancourt to explore new scenes among the mountains on his return home. During this evening, he was often silent thoughtful. Saint-Aubert's manner towards him was affectionate, though grave, and Emily was serious, though she made frequent efforts to appear cheerful. After one of the most melancholy evenings they had yet passed together, they separated for the night. End of Volume 1, Chapter 5 The Mysteries of
1: Ludolfo by Anne Radcliffe The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume One, Chapter Six I care not, fortune, what you me deny. You cannot rob me of free nature's grace. You cannot shut the windows of the sky, through which Aurora shows her brightening face. You cannot bar my constant feet to trace the woods and lawns by living stream at eve. Let health my nerves and finer fibers grace and I their toys to the great children leave. Of fancy, reason, virtue, naught can me bereave. Thompson. In the morning, Valancourt breakfasted with Saint-Aubert and Emily, neither of whom seemed much refreshed by sleep. The languor of illness still hung over Saint-Aubert, and to Emily's fears his disorder appeared to be increasing fast upon him. She watched his looks with anxious affection, and their expression was always faithfully reflected in her own. At the commencement of their acquaintance, Valencourt had made known his name and family. Saint-Aubert was not a stranger to either, for the family estates, which were now in the possession of an elder brother of Valencourt, were little more than twenty miles distant from La Lavallee, and he had sometimes met the elder Valancourt on visits in the neighborhood. This knowledge had made him more willingly receive his present companion, for though his countenance and manners would have won him the acquaintance of St. Aubert, who was very apt to trust to the intelligence of his own eyes, with respect to countenances, he would not have accepted these as sufficient introductions to that of his daughter. The breakfast was almost as silent as the supper of the preceding night, but their musing was at length interrupted by the sound of the carriage wheels, which were to bear away St. Aubert and Emily. Valancourt started from his chair and went to the window. It was indeed the carriage, and he returned to his seat without speaking. The moment was now come when they must part. Saint-Aubert told Valencourt that he hoped he would never pass La Vallée without favoring him with a visit, and Valencourt, eagerly thanking him, assured him that he never would. As he said which, he looked timidly at Emily, who tried to smile away the seriousness of her spirit, They passed a few minutes in interesting conversation, and Saint-Aubert then led the way to the carriage, Emily and Valencourt following in silence. The latter lingered at the door several minutes after they were seated, and none of the party seemed to have the courage enough to say farewell. At length Saint-Aubert pronounced the melancholy word, which Emily passed to Valencourt, who returned it, with a dejected smile, and the carriage drove on. The travelers remained for some time in a state of tranquil pensiveness which is not unpleasant. saint Aubert interrupted it by observing, This is a very promising young man. It is many years since I have been so much pleased with any person, on so short an acquaintance. He brings back to my memory the days of my youth, when every scene was new and delightful. saint Aubert sighed and sunk again into a reverie, and as Emily looked back upon the road they had passed, Falincourt was seen, at the door of the little inn, following them with his eyes. He perceived her, and waved his hand, and she returned the adieu, till the winding road shut her from his sight. "'I remember when I was about his age,' resumed Saint-Aubert, and I thought and felt exactly as he does. The world was opening upon me then. Now it is closing.' "'My dear sir, do not think so gloomily,' said Emily in a trembling voice. "'I hope you have many, many years to live, for your own sake, for my sake.' "'Ah, my Emily,' replied St. Aubert, "'for thy sake. Well, I hope it is so.' He wiped away a tear that was stealing down his cheek, threw a smile upon his countenance, and said, in a cheering voice, "'There is something in the ardor and ingenuousness of youth which is particularly pleasing to the contemplation of an old man, if his feelings have not been entirely corroded by the world. It is cheering and reviving, like the view of spring to a sick person.' his mind catches somewhat of the spirit of the season, and his eyes are lighted up with a transient sunshine. Valancourt is this spring to me. Emily, who pressed her father's hand affectionately, had never before listened with so much pleasure to the praises he bestowed, no, not even when he had bestowed them on herself. They traveled on, among vineyards, woods, and pastures, delighted with the romantic beauty of the landscape, which was bounded on one side by the grandeur of the Pyrenees, and on the other by the ocean, and soon after noon they reached the town of Colyore, situated on the Mediterranean. Here they dined and rested till towards the cool of day, when they pursued their way along the shores, those enchanting shores which extend to Languedoc. Emily gazed with enthusiasm on the vastness of the sea, its surface varying as the lights and shadows fell, and on its woody banks mellowed with autumnal tints. Saint-Aubert was impatient to reach Perpignan, where he expected letters from Monsieur Quisnel, and it was the expectation of these letters that had induced him to leave Collioure. for his feeble frame had required immediate rest. After travelling a few miles he fell asleep, and Emily, who had put two or three books into the carriage on leaving La Vallée, now had the leisure for looking into them. She sought for one, in which Valencourt had been reading the day before, and hoped for the pleasure of retracing a page over which the eyes of a beloved friend had lately passed, of dwelling on the passages which he had admired, and of permitting them to speak to her in the language of his own mind, and to bring himself to her presence. On searching for the book she could find it nowhere, but in its stead perceived a volume of Petrarch's poems that had belonged to Valancourt, whose name was written in it, and from which he had frequently read passages to her with all the pathetic expression that characterized the feelings of the author. She hesitated in believing, what would have been sufficiently apparent to almost any other person, that he had purposely left this book instead of the one she had lost, and that love had prompted the exchange, but having opened it with impatient pleasure, and observed the lines of his pencil drawn along the various passages he had read aloud, and, under others more descriptive of delicate tenderness than he had dared to trust his voice with, the conviction came at length to her mind. For some moments she was conscious only of being beloved, then a recollection of all the variations of tone and countenance, with which he had recited these sonnets, and of the soul, which spoke in their expression, pressed to her memory, as she wept over the memorial of his affection. They arrived at Perpignan soon after sunset where Saint-Aubert found, as he had expected, letters from Monsieur Quesnel, the contents of which so evidently and grievously affected him, that Emily was alarmed, and pressed him, as far as her delicacy would permit, to disclose the occasion of his concern. But he answered her only by tears, and immediately began to talk on other topics. Emily, though she forbore to press the one most interesting to her, was greatly affected by her father's manner, and passed a night of sleepless solitude. In the morning they pursued their journey along the coast towards Lucat, another town on the Mediterranean situated on the borders of Languedoc and Roussillon. On the way, Emily renewed the subject of the preceding night, and appeared so deeply affected by Saint Aubert's silence and dejection that he relaxed from his reserve. I was unwilling, my dear Emily, said he, to throw a cloud over the pleasure you receive from these scenes and meant, therefore, to conceal for the present some circumstances, with which, however, you must at length have been made acquainted. But your anxiety has defeated my purpose. You suffer as much from this, perhaps, as you will do from a knowledge of the facts I have to relate. Monsieur Quesnel's visit proved an unhappy one to me. He came to tell me part of the news he has now confirmed. You may have heard me mention a Monsieur Motteville of Paris, but you did not know that the chief of my personal property was invested in his hands. I had great confidence in him, and I am yet willing to believe that he is not wholly unworthy of my esteem. A variety of circumstances have concurred to ruin him, and I am ruined with him. Saint Aubert paused to conceal his emotion. The letters I have just received from Monsieur Casnel, resumed he, struggling to speak with firmness, enclosed others from Motteville, which confirmed all I dreaded. Must we then quit La Vallée? said Emily, after a long pause of silence, "'That is yet uncertain,' replied Saint-Aubert. "'It will depend upon the compromise "'Motville is able to make with his creditors.
2: "'My
1: income, you know, was never large, "'and now it will be reduced to little indeed. "'It is for you, Emily, my child, "'that I am most afflicted.' "'His last words faltered. "'Emily smiled tenderly upon him through her tears, "'and then, endeavoring to overcome her emotion, "'My dear father,' said she, "'do not grieve for me or for yourself. "'We may yet be happy.' If La Vallée remains for us we must be happy. We will retain only one servant, and you shall scarcely perceive the change in your income. Be comforted, my dear sir, we shall not feel the want of those luxuries which others value so highly, since we never had a taste for them, and poverty cannot deprive us of many consolations. It cannot rob us of the affection we have for each other, or degrade us in our own opinion, or in that of any person whose opinion we ought to value. St. Aubert concealed his face with his handkerchief, and was unable to speak, but Emily continued to urge her father the truths which himself had pressed upon her mind. Besides, my dear sir, poverty cannot deprive us of intellectual delights. It cannot deprive you of the comfort of affording me examples of fortitude and benevolence, nor me of the delight of a consoling a beloved parent. It cannot deaden our taste for the grand and the beautiful, or deny us the means of indulging it. For the scenes of nature, those sublime spectacles, so infinitely superior to all artificial luxuries, are open for the enjoyment of the poor as well as of the rich. Of what, then, have we to complain, so long as we are not in want of necessaries? Pleasures such as wealth cannot buy will still be ours. We retain, then, the sublime luxuries of nature, and lose only the frivolous ones of art." Saint-Aubert could not reply. He caught Emily to his bosom, their tears flowed together but they were not tears of sorrow. After this language of the heart, all other would have been feeble, and they remained silent for some time. Then Saint-Aubert conversed as before, for if his mind had not recovered its natural tranquillity, it at least assumed the appearance of it. They reached the romantic town of Le Cat early in the day, but Saint-Aubert was weary and they determined to pass the night there. In the evening he exerted himself so far as to walk with his daughter to view the environs that overlooked the lake of Lucat, the Mediterranean, part of Roussillon with the Pyrenees, and a wide extent of the luxurious province of Languedoc, now blushing with the ripened vintage which the peasants were beginning to gather. saint Aubert and Emily saw the busy groups, caught the joyous song that was wafted on the breeze, and anticipated with apparent pleasure their next day's journey over this gay region. He designed, however, still to wind along the seashore. To return home immediately was partly his wish, but from this he was withheld by a desire to lengthen the pleasure which the journey gave his daughter, and to try the effect of the sea air on his own disorder. On the following day, therefore, they recommenced their journey through Languedoc, winding the shores of the Mediterranean, the Pyrenees still forming the magnificent background of their prospects, while on their right was the ocean, and on their left, wide extended plains melting into the blue horizon. Saint Aubert was pleased, and conversed much with Emily, yet his cheerfulness was sometimes artificial, and sometimes a shade of melancholy would steal upon his countenance and betray him. This was soon chased away by Emily's smile, who smiled, however, with an aching heart, for she saw that his misfortunes preyed upon his mind, and upon his enfeebled frame. It was evening when they reached a small village of Upper Languedoc, where they meant to pass the night, but the place could not afford them beds, for here too it was the time of the vintage, and they were obliged to proceed to the next post. The languor of illness and of fatigue, which returned upon St. Aubert, required immediate repose, and the evening was now far advanced, but from the necessity there was no appeal, and he ordered Michael to proceed. The rich plains of Languedoc, which exhibited all the glories of the vintage, with the gaieties of a French festival, no longer awakened St. Aubert to pleasure, whose condition formed a mournful contrast to the hilarity and youthful beauty which surrounded him. As his languid eyes moved over the scene, he considered that they would soon perhaps be closed forever on this world. Those distant and sublime mountains, said he secretly, as he gazed on a chain of the Pyrenees that stretched towards the west, these luxuriant plains, this blue vault, the cheerful light of day will be shut from my eyes. The song of the peasant, the cheering voice of man, will no longer sound for me. The intelligent eyes of Emily seemed to read what passed in the mind of her father, and she fixed them on his face with an expression of such tender pity as recalled his thoughts from every dulcetory object of regret, and he remembered only that he must leave his daughter without protection. This reflection changed regret to agony. He sighed deeply and remained silent, "'while she seemed to understand that sigh, "'for she pressed his hand affectionately "'and then turned to the window to conceal her tears. "'The sun now threw a last yellow gleam "'on the waves of the Mediterranean, "'and the gloom of twilight spread fast over the sea, "'till only a melancholy ray appeared on the western horizon, "'marking the point where the sun had set "'amid the vapors of an autumnal evening. "'A cool breeze now came from the shore, "'and Emily let down the glass.' But the air, which was refreshing to health, was as chilling to sickness, and St. Aubert desired that the window might be drawn up. Increasing illness made him now more anxious than ever to finish the day's journey, and he stopped the muleteer to inquire how far they had yet to go to the next post. He replied, Nine miles. I feel I am unable to proceed much further, said St. Aubert. Inquire as you go if there is any house on the road that would accommodate us for the night." He sunk back in the carriage, and Michael, cracking his whip in the air, set off, and continued on the full gallop, till Saint-Aubert, almost fainting, called him to stop. Emily looked anxiously from the window, and saw a peasant walking at some little distance on the road, for whom they waited till he came up, and when he was asked if there was any house in the neighborhood that accommodated travelers, he replied that he knew of none. "'There is a chateau, indeed, among those woods on the right,' added he, but i believe it receives nobody and i cannot show you the way for i am almost a stranger here saint aubert was going to ask him some further question concerning the chateau but the man abruptly passed on after some consideration he ordered michael to proceed slowly into the woods every moment now deepened the twilight and increased the difficulty of finding the road another peasant soon after passed which is the way to the chateau in the woods cried michael the chateau in the woods exclaimed the peasant "'Do you mean that with the turret yonder?' "'I don't know as for the turret, as you call it,' said Michael. "'I mean that white piece of a building that we see at a distance there among the trees.' "'Yes, that is the turret. "'Why, who are you, that you are going thither?' said the man, with surprise. saint Aubert, on hearing this odd question, and observing the peculiar tone in which it was delivered, looked out from the carriage. "'We are travellers, said he, "'who are in search of a house of accommodation for the night. "'Is there any hereabout?' "'None, monsieur, unless you have a mind to try your luck yonder,' replied the peasant, pointing to the woods. "'But I would not advise you to go there. "'To whom does the chateau belong? "'I scarcely know myself, monsieur. "'It is uninhabited, then?' "'No, not uninhabited. "'But the steward and the housekeeper are there, I believe.' On hearing this, St. Aubert determined to proceed to the chateau, and risk the refusal of being accommodated for the night. He therefore desired the countryman would show Michael the way and bade him expect reward for his trouble. The man was, for a moment, silent, and then said that he was going on other business, but that the road could not be missed, if they went up an avenue to the right, to which he pointed. saint Aubert was going to speak, but the peasant wished him good night and walked on. The carriage now moved towards the avenue, which was guarded by a gate, and Michael, having dismounted to open it, they entered between rows of ancient oak and chestnut, whose interminable branches formed a lofty arch above. There was something so gloomy and desolate in the appearance of this avenue, and its lonely silence, that Emily almost shuddered as she passed along, and recollecting the manner in which the peasant had mentioned the chateau, she gave a mysterious meaning to his words, such as she had not suspected when he uttered them. These apprehensions, however, she tried to check, considering that they were probably the effect of a melancholy imagination which her father's situation, and a consideration of her own circumstances, had made sensible to every impression. They passed slowly on, for they were now almost in darkness, which, together with the unevenness of the ground, and the frequent roots of old trees, that shot up above the soil, made it necessary to proceed with caution. On a sudden Michael stopped the carriage, and as St. Aubert looked from the window to inquire the cause, he perceived a figure at some distance moving up the avenue. The dusk would not permit him to distinguish what it was, but he bade Michael go on. "'This seems a wild place,' said Michael. "'There is no house hereabouts. Don't your honor think we had better turn back?' "'Go a little farther, and if we see no house then, we will return to the road,' replied saint Aubert. Michael proceeded with reluctance, and the extreme slowness of his pace made saint Aubert look again from the window to hasten him, when again he saw the figure. He was somewhat startled. Probably the gloominess of the spot made him more liable to alarm than usual. However this might be, he now stopped Michael, and bade him call to the person in the avenue. Please your honor, he may be a robber, said Michael. It does not please me, replied Saint Aubert, who could not forbear smiling at the simplicity of his phrase, and we will, therefore, return to the road, for I see no probability of meeting here with what we seek. Michael turned about immediately, and was retracing his way with alacrity, when a voice was heard from among the trees on the left. It was not the voice of command or distress, but a deep, hollow tone which seemed to be scarcely human. The man whipped his mules till they went as fast as possible, regardless of the darkness, the broken ground, and the necks of the whole party, nor once stopped till he reached the gate, which opened from the avenue into the high road, where he went into a more moderate pace. "'I am very ill,' said St. Aubert, taking his daughter's hand. "'You are worse, then, sir,' said Emily, extremely alarmed by his manner.
2: "'You
1: are worse, and here is no assistance. Good God, what is to be done?' He leaned his head on her shoulder, while she endeavored to support him with her arm, and Michael was again ordered to stop. When the rattling of the wheels had ceased, music was heard on their air. It was to Emily the voice of hope oh we are near some human habitation said she help may soon be had she listened anxiously the sounds were distant and seemed to come from a remote part of the woods that bordered the road and as she looked towards the spot whence they issued she perceived in the faint moonlight something like a chateau it was difficult however to reach this saint Aubert was now too ill to bear the motion of the carriage Michael could not quit his mules, and Emily, who still supported her father, feared to leave him, and also feared to venture alone to such a distance, she knew not whither or to whom. Something, however, it was necessary to determine upon immediately. Saint-Aubert, therefore, told Michael to proceed slowly, but they had not gone far when he fainted, and the carriage was again stopped. He lay quite senseless. "'My dear, dear father!' cried Emily, in great agony, who began to fear that he was dying." Speak, if it is only one word, to let me hear the sound of your voice." But no voice spoke in reply. In the agony of terror she bade Michael bring water from the rivulet that flowed along the road, and having received some in the man's hat, with trembling hands she sprinkled it over her father's face, which as soon as the moon's rays now fell upon it, seemed to bear the impression of death. Every emotion of selfish fear now gave way to a stronger influence, and committing St. Aubert to the care of Michael who refused to go far from his mules, she stepped from the carriage in search of the chateau she had seen at a distance. It was a still, moonlight night, and the music, which yet sounded on the air, directed her steps from the high road, up a shadowy lane that led to the woods. Her mind was, for some time, so entirely occupied by anxiety and terror for her father that she felt none for herself, till the deepening gloom of the overhanging foliage, which now wholly excluded the moonlight, and the wildness of the place, recalled her to a sense of her adventurous situation. The music had ceased, and she had no guide but chance. For a moment she paused in terrified perplexity, till a sense of her father's condition, again overcoming every consideration for herself, she proceeded. The lane terminated in the woods, but she looked round in vain for a house or a human being, and as vainly listened for a sound to guide her. She hurried on, however, not knowing whither, avoiding the recesses of the woods, and endeavouring to keep along their margin, till a rude kind of avenue, which opened upon a moonlight spot, arrested her attention. The wildness of this avenue brought to her recollection the one leading to the turreted chateau, and she was inclined to believe that this was a part of the same domain, and probably led to the same point. While she hesitated, whether to follow it or not, A sound of many voices in loud merriment burst upon her ear. It seemed not the laugh of cheerfulness, but of riot, and she stood appalled. While she paused, she heard a distant voice calling from the way she had come, and not doubting, but it was that of Michael, her first impulse was to hasten back, but a second thought changed her purpose. She believed that nothing less than the last extremity could have prevailed with Michael to quit his mules, and fearing that her father was now dying, she rushed forward, with a feeble hope of obtaining assistance from the people in the woods. Her heart beat with fearful expectation as she drew near the spot whence the voices issued, and she often startled when her steps disturbed the fallen leaves. The sounds led her towards the moonlight glade she had before noticed, at a little distance from which she stopped, and saw, between the boles of the trees, a small circular level of green turf, surrounded by the woods, on which appeared a group of figures. On drawing nearer she distinguished these by their dress to be peasants, and perceived several cottages scattered round the edge of the woods, which waved loftily over this spot. While she gazed, and endeavored to overcome the apprehensions that withheld her steps, several peasant girls came out of a cottage. Music instantly struck up, and the dance began. It was the joyous music of the vintage, the same she had before heard upon the air. Her heart, occupied with terror for her father, could not feel the contrast which this gay scene offered to her own distress. She stepped hastily forwards towards a group of elder peasants, who were seated at the door of a cottage, and having explained her situation, entreated their assistance. Several of them rose with alacrity, and offering any service in their power, followed Emily, who seemed to move on the wind as fast as they could towards the road. When she reached the carriage, she found St. Aubert restored to animation. On the recovery of his senses, having heard from Michael whither his daughter was gone, anxiety for her overcame every regard for himself, and he had sent him in search of her. He was, however, still languid, and perceiving himself unable to travel much farther, he renewed his inquiries for an inn, and concerning the chateau in the woods. "'The chateau cannot accommodate you, sir,' said a venerable peasant, who had followed Emily from the woods. "'It is scarcely inhabited, but if you will do me the honor to visit my cottage, You shall be welcome to the best bed it affords. saint Aubert was himself a Frenchman. He, therefore, was not surprised at French courtesy. But, ill as he was, he felt the value of the offer enhanced by the manner which accompanied it. He had too much delicacy to apologize, or appear to hesitate about availing himself of the peasant's hospitality, but immediately accepted it with the same frankness with which it was offered. The carriage again moved slowly on. Michael following the peasants up the lane, which Emily had just quitted, till they came to the moonlight glade. saint Aubert's spirits were so far restored by the courtesy of his host, and the near prospect of repose, that he looked with a sweet complacency upon the moonlight scene, surrounded by the shadowy woods, through which, here and there, an opening admitted the streaming splendor, discovering a cottage or a sparkling rivulet. He listened, with no painful emotion, the merry notes of the guitar and tambourine, and, though tears came to his eyes when he saw the debonair dance of the peasants, they were not merely tears of mournful regret. With Emily it was otherwise. Immediate terror for her father had now subsided into a gentle melancholy, which every note of joy, by awakened comparison, served to heighten. The dance ceased on the approach of the carriage, which was a phenomenon in these sequestered woods, and the peasantry flocked around it with eager curiosity. On learning that it brought a sick stranger, several girls ran across the turf and returned with wine and baskets of grapes, which they presented to the travelers, each with kind contention pressing for a preference. At length the carriage stopped at a neat cottage, and his venerable conductor, having assisted Saint-Aubert to alight, led him and Emily to a small inner room, illuminated only by moonbeams, which the open casement admitted. Saint-Aubert, rejoicing in rest, seated himself in an armchair and his senses were refreshed by the cool and balmy air that lightly waved the embowered honeysuckles and wafted their sweet breath into the apartment. His host, who was called la voisin, quitted the room, but soon returned with fruits, cream, and all the pastoral luxury his cottage afforded, having set down which, with a smile of unfeigned welcome, he retired behind the chair of his guest. Saint-Aubert insisted on his taking a seat at the table, and when the fruit had allayed the fever of his palate, and he found himself somewhat revived, he began to converse with his host, who communicated several particulars concerning himself and his family, which were interesting because they were spoken from the heart, and delineated a picture of the sweet courtesies of family kindness. Emily sat by her father, holding his hand, and while she listened to the old man, her heart swelled with the affectionate sympathy he described and her tears fell to the mournful consideration that death would probably soon deprive her of the dearest blessing she then possessed. The soft moonlight of an autumnal evening and the distant music, which now sounded a plaintive strain, aided the melancholy of her mind. The old man continued to talk of his family, and Saint-Aubert remained silent. I have only one daughter living, said la voisin, but she is happily married and is everything to me. When I lost my wife, he added with a sigh, I came to live with Agnes and her family. She has several children, who are all dancing on the green yonder, as merry as grasshoppers, and long may they be so. I hope to die, among them, monsieur. I am old now, and cannot expect to live long, but there is some comfort in dying surrounded by one's children. My good friend, said St. Aubert, while his voice trembled, I hope you will live long surrounded by them. "'Ah, sir, at my age I must not expect that,' replied the old man, and he paused. "'I can scarcely wish it,' he resumed, "'for I trust that whenever I die I shall go to heaven, "'where my poor wife is gone before me. "'I can sometimes fancy I see her of a still moonlight night, "'walking among these shades she loved so well. "'Do you believe, monsieur, that we shall be permitted to revisit the earth "'after we have quitted the body?' "'Emily could no longer stifle the anguish of her heart.' her tears fell fast upon her father's hand, which she yet held. He made an effort to speak, and at length said, in a low voice, I hope we shall be permitted to look down on those we have left on the earth, but I can only hope it. Futurity is much veiled from our eyes, and faith and hope are our only guides concerning it. We are not enjoined to believe that disembodied spirits watch over the friends they have loved, but we may innocently hope it. "'It is a hope which I will never resign,' continued he, while he wiped the tears from his daughter's eyes. "'It will sweeten the bitter moments of death.' Tears fell slowly on his cheeks. La voisin wept, too, and there was a pause of silence. Then la voisin, renewing the subject, said, "'But if you believe, sir, that we shall meet in another world the relations we have loved in this, I must believe this.' "'Then do believe it,' replied saint Aubert. Severe, indeed, would be the pangs of separation, if we believed it to be eternal. Look up, my dear Emily, we shall meet again. He lifted his eyes towards heaven, and a gleam of moonlight, which fell upon his countenance, discovered peace and resignation, stealing on the lines of sorrow. La voisin felt he had pursued the subject too far, and he dropped it, saying, We are in darkness. I forgot to bring a light. No, said saint Aubert. this is a light I love. Sit down, my good friend. "'Emily, my love, I find myself better than I have been all day. This air refreshes me. I can enjoy this tranquil hour, and that music which floats so sweetly at a distance. Let me see you smile. Who touches that guitar so tastefully? Are there two instruments, or is it an echo I hear?' "'It is an echo, monsieur, I fancy. The guitar is often heard at night, when all is still, but nobody knows who touches it, and it is sometimes accompanied by a voice so sweet and so sad, one would almost think the woods are haunted. "'They certainly are haunted,' said Saint-Aubert with a smile, "'but I believe it is by mortals. "'I have sometimes heard it at midnight when I could not sleep,' rejoined Voisin, "'not seeming to hear this remark. "'Almost under my window, and I never heard any music like it. "'It has often made me think of my poor wife till I cried. "'I have sometimes got up to the window to look if I could see anybody, "'but as soon as I opened the casement all was hushed, "'and nobody to be seen.' and I have listened and listened till I have been so timorous that even the tremblings of the leaves in the breeze has made me start. They say it often comes to warn people of their death, but I have heard it these many years and outlived the warning. Emily, though she smiled at the mention of this ridiculous superstition, could not in the present tone of her spirits wholly resist its contagion. Well, but my good friend said Saint Aubert, has nobody had courage to follow the sounds? If they had, they would probably have discovered who is the musician. Yes, sir, they have followed them some way into the woods, but the music has still retreated and seemed as distant as ever, and the people have at last been afraid of being led into harm and would go no further. It is very seldom that I have heard these sounds so early in the evening. They usually come about midnight, when that bright planet which is rising above the turret yonder, sets below the woods on the left. "'What turret?' asked Saint-Aubert with quickness. "'I see none.' "'Your pardon, monsieur, you do see one indeed, for the moon shines full upon it. Up the avenue yonder, a long way off, the chateau it belongs to is hid among the trees.' "'Yes, my dear sir,' said Emily, pointing. "'Don't you see something glitter above the dark woods? It is a fane, I fancy, which the rays fall upon.' "'Oh, yes, I see what you mean. And who does the chateau belong to?' The Marquise de Villerois was its owner," replied Lavoisin, emphatically. Ah! said Saint-Aubert, with a deep sigh, are we, then, so near Le Blanc? He appeared much agitated. It used to be the Marquise's favorite residence, resumed Lavoisin, but he took a dislike to the place and has not been there for many years. We have heard lately that he is dead, and that it has fallen into other hands. Saint-Aubert, who had sat in deep musing, was roused by the last words. "'Dead!' he exclaimed. "'Good God! "'When did he die?' "'He is reported to have died about five weeks since,' replied la voisin. "'Do you know the Marquise, sir?' "'This is very extraordinary,' said Saint-Aubert, without attending to the question. "'Why is it so, my dear sir?' said Emily, in a voice of timid curiosity. He made no reply, but sunk again into a reverie, and in a few moments, when he seemed to have recovered himself, asked who had succeeded to the estates. I have forgot his title, monsieur, said Lavoisin, but my lord resides at Paris chiefly. I hear no talk of his coming hither. The chateau is shut up, then, still? Why, little better, sir. The old housekeeper and her husband the steward have care of it, but they live generally in a cottage hard by. The chateau is spacious, I suppose, said Emily, and must be desolate for the residence of only two persons. Desolate enough, mademoiselle, replied Lavoisin. "'I would not pass one night in the chateau "'for the value of the whole domain.' "'What is that?' said St. Aubert, "'roused again from thoughtfulness.' "'As his host repeated his last sentence, "'a groan escaped from St. Aubert, "'and then, as if anxious to prevent it from being noticed, "'he hastily asked la voisin "'how long he had lived in this neighborhood. "'Almost from my childhood, sir,' replied his host. "'You remember the late marchioness?" then?' "'said St. Aubert in an altered voice. "'Ah, monsieur, that I do well.' "'There are many besides me who remember her.' "'Yes,' said Saint-Aubert, "'and I am one of those.' "'Alas, sir, you remember, then, "'a most beautiful and excellent lady. "'She deserved a better fate.' "'Tears stood in Saint-Aubert's eyes. "'Enough,' said he, "'in a voice almost stifled by the violence "'of his emotions. "'It is enough, my friend.' "'Emily, though extremely surprised "'by her father's manner, forbore to express her feelings by any question. "'La voisin began to apologize,' But Saint-Aubert interrupted him. "'Apology is quite unnecessary,' said he. "'Let us change the topic. You were speaking of the music we just now heard. I was, monsieur, but hark, it comes again. Listen to that voice.' They were all silent. At last a soft and solemn breathing sound rose like a stream of rich distilled perfumes and stole upon the air, that even silence was took ere she was ware, and wished she might deny her nature and be ever more still, to be so displaced. Milton In a few moments the voice died into air, and the instrument, which had been heard before, sounded in low symphony. Saint-Aubert now observed that it produced a tone much more full and melodious than that of a guitar, and still more melancholy and soft than the lute. They continued to listen, but the sounds returned no more. This is strange, said Saint-Aubert, at length interrupting the silence very strange," said Emily. It is so," rejoined La Voisin, and they were again silent. After a long pause, it is now about eighteen years since I first heard that music," said La Voisin. I remember it was on a fine summer's night, much like this, but later that I was walking in the woods and alone. I remember, too, that my spirits were very low, for one of my boys was ill, and we feared we should lose him. I had been watching at his bedside all the evening while his mother slept, for she had sat up with him the night before. I had been watching, and went out for a little fresh air. The day had been very sultry. As I walked under the shades and mused, I heard music at a distance, and thought it was Claude playing upon his flute, as he often did of a fine evening at the cottage door. But when I came to a place where the trees opened, I shall never forget it, and stood looking up at the north lights which shot up the heavens to a great height, I heard, all of a sudden, such sounds. They came so as I cannot describe. It was like the music of angels, and I looked up again, almost expecting to see them in the sky. When I came home, I told what I had heard, but they laughed at me, and said it must be some of the shepherds playing on their pipes, and I could not persuade them to the contrary. A few nights after, however, my wife herself heard the same sounds, and was as much surprised as I was, and Father Denis frightened her sadly by saying that it was music come to warn her of her child's death, and that music often came to houses where there was a dying person. Emily, on hearing this, shrunk with a superstitious dread entirely new to her, and could scarcely conceal her agitation from Saint-Aubert. But the boy lived, Monsieur, in spite of Father Denis. Father Denis, said St. Aubert, who had listened to narrative old age with patient attention, are we near a convent, then? Yes, sir. The convent of St. Clair stands at no great distance, on the seashore yonder. Ah, said St. Aubert, as if struck with some sudden remembrance, the convent of St. Clair. Emily observed the clouds of grief, mingled with a faint expression of horror, gathering on his brow. His countenance became fixed, and touched as it now was by the silver whiteness of the moonlight, he resembled one of those marble statues of a monument, which seemed to bend in hopeless sorrow over the ashes of the dead, shown by the blunted light, that the dim moon through painted casements lends the immigrants. But my dear sir, said Emily, anxious to dissipate his thoughts, you forget that repose is necessary to you. If our kind host will give me leave, I will prepare your bed, for I know how you like it to be made." Saint-Aubert, recollecting himself and smiling affectionately, desired she would not add to her fatigue by that attention, and La Voisin, whose consideration for his guest had been suspended by the interests which his own narrative had recalled, now started from his seat, and apologizing for not having called Agnes from the green, hurried out of the room. In a few moments he returned with his daughter, a young woman of pleasing countenance, and Emily learned from her what she had not before suspected, that, for their accommodation, it was necessary part of la voisin's family should leave their beds. She lamented this circumstance, but Agnes, by her reply, fully proved that she inherited, at least, a share of her father's courteous hospitality. It was settled that some of her children and Michael should sleep in the neighboring cottage. "'If I am better to-morrow, my dear,' said Saint-Aubert, when Emily returned to him, "'I mean to set out at an early hour, that we may rest during the heat of the day, "'and will travel towards home. "'In the present state of my health and spirits I cannot look on a longer journey with pleasure, "'and I am also very anxious to reach La Vallée.' "'Emily, though she also desired to return, was grieved at her father's sudden wish to do so, "'which she thought indicated a greater degree of indisposition than he would acknowledge.' St. Aubert now retired to rest, and Emily to her little chamber, but not to immediate repose. Her thoughts returned to the late conversation concerning the state of departed spirits, a subject at this time particularly affecting to her, when she had every reason to believe that her dear father would ere long be numbered with them. She leaned pensively on the little open casement, and in deep thought fixed her eyes on the heaven, whose blue, unclouded concave was studded thick with stars the worlds, perhaps, of spirits, unspeared of mortal mold. As her eyes wandered along the boundless ether, her eyes rose, as before, towards the sublimity of the deity, and to the contemplation of futurity. No busy note of this world interrupted the course of her mind. The merry dance had ceased, and every cottager had retired to his home. The air still seemed scarcely to breathe upon the woods, and, now and then, the distant sound of a solitary sheep-bell or of a closing casement, was all that broke on silence. At length, even this hint of human being was heard no more. Elevated and enwrapped, while her eyes were often wet with tears of sublime devotion and solemn awe, she continued at the casement, till the gloom of midnight hung over the earth, and the planet, which Voisin had pointed out, sunk below the woods. She then recollected what he had said concerning this planet, and the mysterious music and as she lingered at the window, half-hoping and half-fearing that it would return, her mind was led to the remembrance of the extreme emotion her father had shown, on mention of the Marquise La Villois' death, and of the fate of the Marchioness, and she felt strongly interested concerning the remote cause of this emotion. Her surprise and curiosity were indeed the greater, because she did not recollect ever to have heard him mention the name of Villois. No music, however, stole on the silence of the night, and Emily, perceiving the lateness of the hour, returned to a scene of fatigue, remembered that she was to rise early in the morning, and withdrew from the window to repose. End of Volume 1, Chapter 6
0: Recording by Sean O'Hara The Mysteries of Adolfo by Anne Radcliffe Volume 1, Chapter 7 Let those deplore their doom whose hope still grovels in this dark sojourn. The lofty souls can look beyond the tomb, Can smile at fate and wonder how they mourn. Shall spring to these sad scenes no more return? Is yonder wave the sun's eternal bed? Soon shall the Orient with new luster burn, And spring shall soon her vital influence shed. Again attune the grove, again adorn the mead. Emily, called as she had requested, at an early hour, awoke little refreshed by sleep, for uneasy dreams had pursued her, and marred the kindest blessing of the unhappy. But, when she opened her casement, looked out upon the woods, bright with the morning sun and inspired with pure air, her mind was soothed. The scene was filled with that cheering freshness which seems to breathe the very spirit of health, and she heard only the sweet and picturesque sounds, if such an expression may be allowed, Maddened bell of the distant convents, the faint murmur of the sea waves, the song of birds, and the far off low of cattle, which she saw coming slowly on between the trunks of trees. Struck with the circumstances of imagery around her, she indulged the pensive tranquillity which they inspired, and while she leaned on her window, waiting till Saint Aubert could descend to breakfast, her ideas arranged themselves in the following lines The first hour of morning. How sweet to wind the forest's tangled shade! When early twilight from the eastern bound Dawns on the sweeping landscape of the glade, And fades as morning spreads her blush around, When every distant flower that wept in night, lifts its chill head, soft glowing with a tear, expands its tender blossom to the light, And gives its incense to genial air. How fresh the breeze that wafts rich perfume, And swells the melody of waking birds the hum of bees beneath the verdant gloom, and woodman's song, and low of distant herds. Then doubtful gleams the mountain's hoary head, seen through the parting foliage from afar, and farther still the ocean's misty bed, with flitting sails that partial sea-beams share, but vain the sylvan shade, the breath of may, the voice of music floating on the gale, and forms that beam through morning's dewy veil. If help no longer bid the heart be gay, O oh, balmy hour, design her wealth to give, your spreader blush, and to bid the parent live." Emily now heard persons moving below in the cottage, and presently the voice of Michael, who was talking to his mules, as he led them forth from the hut adjoining. As she left her room, Aubert, who was now risen, met her at the door, apparently as little restored by sleep as herself. She led him downstairs to the little parlor, in which they had supped on the preceding night, where they found a neat breakfast set out while the host and his daughter waited to bid them good-morrow. "'I envy you this cottage, my good friends,' said Saint-Aubert, as he met them. "'It is so pleasant, so quiet, and so neat, and this air that one breathes. If anything could restore lost health, it would surely be this air.' La Voisin bowed gratefully and replied, with gallantry of a Frenchman, "'Our cottage may be envied, sir, since you and Mademoiselle have honoured it with your presence.' saint gave him a friendly smile for his compliment, and sat down to a table, spread with cream, fruit, new cheese, butter, and coffee. Emily, who had observed her father with attention and thought he looked very ill, endeavored to persuade him to defer traveling till the afternoon, but he seemed very anxious to be at home, and his anxiety expressed repeatedly, and with an earnestness that was unusual with him. He now said he found himself as well as he had been of late, and that he could bear traveling better in the cool hour of the morning than at any other time. While he was talking with his venerable host and thanking him for his kind of tensions, Emily observed his countenance change, and, before she could reach him, he fell back in his chair. In a few moments he recovered from the sudden faintness that had come over him, but felt so ill that he perceived himself unable to set out, and, having remained a little while, struggling against the pressure of indisposition, he begged he might be helped upstairs to bed. This request renewed all the terror which Emily had suffered on the preceding evening. But though scarcely able to support herself under the sudden shock it gave her, she tried to conceal her apprehension from Saint Aubert and gave her trembling arm to assist him to the door of his chamber. When he was once more in bed, he desired that Emily, who was then weeping in her own room, might be called. And, as she came, he waved his hand for every other person to quit the apartment. When they were alone, he held out his hand to her, and fixed his eyes upon her countenance. With an expression so full of tenderness and grief that all her fortitude forsook her, and she burst into an agony of tears. Saint Aubert seemed to be struggling to acquire firmness, but was still unable to speak. He could only press her hands and check the tears that stood trembling in his eyes. At length he commanded his voice. My dear child, said he, trying to smile through his anguish. My dear Emily, and paused again. He raised his eyes to heaven as if in prayer, and then, in a firmer tone, and with a look in which tenderness of the Father was dignified by the highest solemnity of the saint, he said, My dear child, I would soften the painful truth I have to tell you, but I find myself quite unequal to the art. Alas, I would at this moment conceal it from you, but that it would be most cruel to deceive you. It cannot be long before we must part. Let us talk of it, that our thoughts and our prayers may prepare us to bear it. His voice faltered, while Emily still weeping, pressed his hand close to her heart, which swelled with a convulsive sigh, but she could not look up. Let me not waste these moments, said Saint-Aubert, recovering himself. I have much to say. There is a circumstance of solemn consequence, which I have to mention, and a solemn promise to obtain from you. When this is done, I shall be easier. You have observed, my dear, how anxious I am to reach home, but know not all my reasons for this. Listen to what I am going to say. Yet stay. Before I say more, give me this promise, a promise made to your dying father. saint Aubert was interrupted. Emily, struck by his last words, as if for the first time, with the conviction of his immediate danger, raised her head. Her tears stopped, and, gazing at him for a moment with an expression of unutterable anguish, a slight convulsion seized her, and she sunk senseless in her chair. saint Aubert's cries brought love sin and his daughter to the room, and they administered every means in their power to restore her but for a considerable time without effect. When she recovered, Saint-Aubert was so exhausted by the scene he had witnessed that it was many minutes before he had strength to speak. He was, however, somewhat relieved by a cordial which Emily gave him, and, being again alone with her, he exerted himself to tranquilize her spirits, and to offer her all the comfort of which her situation admitted. She threw herself into his arms, wept on his neck, and grief made her so insensible to all he said, he ceased to offer the alleviations which he himself could not at this moment feel, and mingled his silent tears with hers. Recalled at length to a sense of duty, tried to spare her father from a farther view of her suffering and quitting his embrace dried her tears and said something which she meant for consolation my dear emily replied Saint Aubert, my dear child we must look up with humble confidence to that being who has protected and comforted us in every danger and in every affliction we have known to whose eyes every moment of our lives has been exposed he will not he does not forsake us now i feel his consolation to my heart i shall leave you my child still in his care and though I depart from this world, I shall still be in his presence. Nay, weep not again, my Emily. In death there is nothing new or surprising, since we all know that we are born to die, and nothing terrible to those who can confide in an all-powerful God. Had my life been spared now, after a very few years in the course of nature, I must have resigned it. Old age, with all its train of infirmity, its privations and its sorrows, would have been mine, and then at last death would have come, and called forth the tears you now shed. Rather, my child, rejoice that I am saved from such suffering, and that I am permitted to die with a mind unimpaired and sensible of the comforts of faith and resignation." Saint-Herbert paused, fatigued with speaking. Emily again endeavored to assume the air of composure, and in replying to what he had said, tried to soothe him with a belief that he had not spoken in vain. When he had reposed for a while, he resumed the conversation. "'Let me return,' said he, to a subject which is very near my heart. I said I had a solemn promise to receive from you. Let me receive it now, before I explain the chief circumstance which it concerns. There are others, of which your peace requires that you should rest in ignorance. Promise then that you will perform exactly what I shall enjoin. Emily, awed by the earnest solemnity of his manner, dried her tears and had begun again to flow, in spite of her efforts to suppress them, and, looking eloquently at Saint-Aubert, found herself to do whatever he should require by a vow, at which she shuddered, yet knew not why. He proceeded. I know you too well, my Emily, to believe that you would break any promise, much less one thus solemnly given. Your assurance gives me peace, and the observance of it of the utmost importance to your tranquillity. Hear then what I am going to tell you. The closet which adjoins my chamber at La Vallée has a sliding board in the floor. You will know it by the remarkable knot in the wood, and by its being the next board, except one, the wainscot which fronts the door. At the distance of about a yard from that end, nearer the window, you will perceive the line across it, as if the plank had been joined. The way to open it is this. Press your foot under the line, the end of the board will then sink, and you may slide it with ease beneath the other. Below, you will see a hollow place." Sanobert paused for breath, and Emily sat fixed in deep attention. "'You understand these directions, my dear,' said he. Emily, though scarcely able to speak, assured him that she did. "'When you return home, then,' he added with a deep sigh. At the mention of her return home, all the melancholy circumstances that must attend this return rushed upon her fancy. She burst into convulsive griefs, and Saint Aubert himself, affected beyond the resistance of the fortitude which he had, at first summoned, wept with her. After some moments he composed himself. "'My dear child,' said he, "'be comforted. When I am gone, you will not be forsaken. I leave you only in the more immediate care of that providence, which has never yet forsaken me. Do not afflict me with this excessive grief. Rather, teach me, by your example, to bear my own." He stopped again, and Emily, the more she endeavored to restrain her emotion, found it less possible to do so. Saint Aubert, who now spoke with pain, resumed the subject. That closet, my dear, when you return home, go to it. And beneath the board I have described you will find a package of written papers. Attend to me now, for that promise you have given particularly relates to what I shall direct. These papers you must burn, and solemnly I command you, without examining them. Emily's surprise for a moment overcame her grief, and she ventured to ask why this must be. Saint Aubert replied that if it had been right for him to explain his reasons, her late promise would have been unnecessarily extracted. It is sufficient for you, my love, to have a deep sense of the importance of observing me in this instance. Saint Aubert proceeded. Under the board you will also find about two hundred louis-d'or wrapped in a silk purse. Indeed, it was to secure whatever money might be in the chateau that this secret place was contrived, at a time when the province was overrun by troops of men who took advantage of the Tumults and became plunderers. But I have yet another promise to receive from you, which is, that you will never, whatever may be your future circumstances, sell the chateau. Son even enjoined her, whenever she might marry, to make it an article of the contract that the chateau should always be hers. He then gave her a more minute account of her present circumstances than he had yet done, adding, the two hundred louis, with what money you will find in my purse, is all the ready money I have to leave you. I have told you how I am circumstanced with Monsieur Montville in Paris. Ah, my child, I leave you poor. But not destitute, he added after a long pause. Emily could make no reply to the things he now said, but knelt at the bedside with her face upon the quilt, weeping over the hand she held there. After this conversation, the mind of saint Aubert appeared to be much more at ease. But, exhausted by the effort of speaking, he sunk into a kind of doze and emily continued to watch and weep beside him till a gentle tap at the chamber door aroused her it was la voisin come to say that a confessor from the neighboring convent was below ready to attend saint aubert emily would not suffer her father to be disturbed but desired that the priest might not leave the cottage Pensanobera awoke from his doze, his senses were confused, and it was some moments before he recovered them sufficiently to know that it was Emily who sat beside him. He then moved his lips and stretched forth his hand to her. As she received which, she sank back in her chair, overcome by the impression of death on his countenance. In a few minutes he recovered his voice, and Emily then asked if he wished to see the confessor. He replied that he did, and when the Holy Father appeared, she withdrew. They remained alone together about half an hour. When Emily was called in, she found Saint Aubert more agitated than when she had left, and she gazed with a slight degree of resentment at the friar as the cause of this. Who, however, looked mildly and mournfully at her, and turned away. Saint Aubert, in a tremulous voice, said he wished her to join in prayer with him, and asked if love with sin would do so too. The old man and his daughter came in. They both wept and knelt with Emily around the bed, while the Holy Father read in a solemn voice the service of the dying. Saint Aubert lay with serene countenance, and seemed to join fervently in the devotion. while tears often stole from beneath his closed eyelids, and Emily's sobs more than once interrupted the service. When it was concluded, an extreme unction had been administered, the friar withdrew. San Aubert then made a sign for Lavosin to come nearer. He gave him his hand, and was, for a moment, silent. At length he said in a trembling voice, My good friend, our acquaintance has been short long enough to give you an opportunity of showing me much kind attention. I cannot doubt that you will extend this kindness to my daughter when I am gone. She will have need of it. I entrust her to your care during the few days she will remain here. I need say no more. You know the feelings of a father, for you have children. Mine would be indeed severe, if I had less confidence in you. He paused. Lavoisin assured him, and his tears bore testimony to his sincerity, that he would do all he could to soften her affliction, and that, if saint Aubert wished, he would even attend her to Gascony, an offer so pleasing to saint Aubert that he had scarcely the words to acknowledge his sense of the old man's kindness, or to tell him that he accepted it. The scene that followed between saint Aubert and Emily affected Lavoisin so much that he quitted the chamber, and she was again left alone with her father, whose spirit seemed fainting fast but neither his senses nor his voice yet failed him and at intervals he employed much of these last awful moments in advising his daughter as to her future conduct perhaps he had never thought more justly or expressed himself more clearly than he did now above all my dear emily said he do not indulge in the pride of fine feelings the romantic error of amiable minds those who really possess sensibility ought early to be taught that it is a dangerous quality which is continually extracting the excessive misery or delight from every surrounding circumstance and, since in our passage through the world, painful circumstances occur more frequently than pleasing ones, and since our sense of evil is, I fear, more acute than our sense of good, we have become the victims of our feelings, unless we can in some degree command them. I know you will say, for you are young, Nyanli. I know you will say that you are contented sometimes to suffer, rather than give up your refined sense of happiness at others. But when your mind has long been harassed by vicissitudes, you will be content to rest, and you will then recover from your delusions. You will perceive that the phantom of happiness is exchanged for the substance, for happiness arises in a state of peace, not of tumult. It is of a temperate and uniform nature, and can no more exist in a heart that is continually alive to minute circumstances than in one that is dead to feeling. You see, my dear, that though I would argue against the dangers of sensibility, I am not an advocate of apathy. At your age, I should have said that is a vice more hateful than all the errors of sensibility, and I say so still. I call it a vice because it leads to positive evil. In this, however, it does no more than the ill-governed sensibility, which by such a rule might also be called a vice. But the evil of the former is of more general consequence. I have exhausted myself, said St. Aubert, feebly, and I have wearied you, my Emily, but on a subject so important to your future comfort, I am anxious to be perfectly understood. Emily assured him that his vice was most precious to her, and that she would never forget it, or cease from endeavouring to profit by it. Saint Aubert smiled affectionately and sorrowfully upon her. I repeat it, said he. I would not teach you to become insensible if I could. I would only warn you of the evils of susceptibility, and point out how you may avoid them. Beware, my love, I conjure you, of that self-delusion which has been fatal to the peace of many persons. Beware of priding yourself on the gracefulness of sensibility. If you yield to this vanity, your happiness is lost forever. Always remember how much more valuable is the strength of fortitude than the grace of sensibility. Do not, however, confound fortitude with apathy. Apathy cannot know the virtue. Remember, too, that one act of beneficence, one act of real usefulness, is worth all the abstract sentiment in the world. Sentiment is a disgrace instead of an ornament, unless it lead us to good actions. The miser, he thinks himself respectable merely because he possesses wealth, and thus mistakes the means of doing good. The actual accomplishment of it is not more blameful than a man of sentiment without active virtue. He may have observed persons who delight so much in this sort of sensibility to sentiment, which excludes that to the cause of any practical virtue, that they turn from the distressed, and because their sufferings are painful to be contemplated, do not endeavor to relieve them. How despicable is that humanity which can be contented to pity where it might assuage? Saint-Aubert, some time after, spoke of Madame Charon, his sister. Let me inform you of a circumstance that nearly affects your welfare, he added. We have, you know, had little intercourse for some years, but, as she is now your only female relation, I have thought it proper to consign you to her care, as you will see in my will, till you are of age, and to recommend you to her protection afterwards. She is not exactly the person to whom I would have permitted my Emily, but I had no alternative, and I believe her to be upon the whole a good kind of woman. I need not recommend it to your prudence, my love, to endeavor to conciliate her kindness. You he will do it for his sake, who is so often wishing to do so for yours." Emily assured him that, whatever he requested, she would religiously perform to the utmost of her ability. "'Alas!' she added in a voice, interrupted by sighs, "'That will soon be all which remains for me. It will be almost my only consolation to fulfil your wishes. Saint Aubert looked up silently in her face, as if would have spoken, but his spirit sunk awhile, and his eyes became heavy and dull. She felt that look at her heart. My dear father, she exclaimed, and then checking herself, pressed his hand closer and hid her face with her handkerchief. Her tears were concealed, but Saint Aubert heard her convulsive sobs. His spirits returned. Oh, my child, said he faintly. Let my consolation be yours, I die in peace, for I know that I am about to return to the bosom of my father, who will still be your father when I am gone. Always trust in him, my love, and he will support you in these moments, as he supports me." Emily could only listen and weep, but the extreme composure of his manner and the faith and hope he expressed somewhat soothed her anguish. Yet whenever she looked upon his emaciated countenance and saw the lines of death beginning to prevail over it saw his sunk eyes still bent on her and their heavy lids pressing to a close there was a pang in her heart such as defied expression though it required filial virtue like hers to forbear the attempt he desired once more to bless her where are you my dear said he as he stretched forth his hands emily had turned to the window that he might not perceive her anguish she now understood that his sight failed him When he had given her his blessing, and it seemed to be the last effort of an expiring life, he sunk back on his pillow. She kissed his forehead. The damps of death had settled there, and forgetting her fortitude for a moment, her tears mingled with them. Saint Aubert lifted his eyes. The spirit of a father had returned to them, but it quickly vanished, and he spoke no more. Saint Aubert lingered till about three o'clock in the afternoon, and thus gradually sinking into death, he expired without a struggle or a sigh. Emily was led from the chamber by Voisin and his daughter, who did what they could to comfort her. The old man sat and wept with her. Agnes was more erroneously officious. End of Volume 1, Chapter 7
4: Recording by Martin Geeson in Hazelmere, Surrey The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe Volume 1, Chapter 8 O'er him whose doom thy virtues grieve, aerial forms shall sit at eve, And bend the pensive head. Collins. The monk who had before appeared, Returned in the evening to offer consolation to Emily, And brought a kind message from the Lady Abbess, Inviting her to the convent. Emily, though she did not accept the offer, returned an answer expressive of her gratitude. The holy conversation of the friar, whose mild benevolence of manners bore some resemblance to those of Saint-Aubert, soothed the violence of her grief, and lifted her heart to the being who, extending through all place and all eternity, looks on the events of this little world as on the shadows of a moment, and beholds equally and in the same instant the soul that has passed through the gates of death and that which still lingers in the body. In the sight of God, said Emily, my dear father now exists as truly as he yesterday existed to me. It is to me only that he is dead. To God and to himself he yet lives. The good monk left her more tranquil than she had been since Saint Albert died and before she retired to her little cabin for the night, she trusted herself so far as to visit the corpse. Silent and without weeping, she stood by its side. The features, placid and serene, told the nature of the last sensations that had lingered in the now deserted frame. For a moment she turned away, in horror of the stillness in which death had fixed that countenance, never till now seen otherwise than animated then gazed on it with a mixture of doubt and awful astonishment. Her reason could scarcely overcome an involuntary and unaccountable expectation of seeing that beloved countenance still susceptible. She continued to gaze wildly, took up the cold hand, spoke, still gazed and then burst into a transport of grief. La voisin, hearing her sobs, came into the room to lead her away but she heard nothing and only begged that he would leave her. Again alone, she indulged her tears, and when the gloom of evening obscured the chamber and almost veiled from her eyes the object of her distress, she still hung over the body. till her spirits at length were exhausted and she became tranquil. La again knocked at the door and entreated that she would come to the common apartment. Before she went, she kissed the lips of Saint Aubert, as she was wont to do when she bade him good night. Again she kissed them. Her heart felt as if it would break. A few tears of agony started to her eyes. She looked up to heaven, then at Saint Aubert, and left the room. Retired to her lonely cabin, a melancholy thought still hovered round the body of her deceased parent. And when she sunk into a kind of slumber, the images of her waking mind still haunted her fancy. She thought she saw her father approaching her with a benign countenance. Then, smiling mournfully and pointing upwards, his lips moved. But instead of words, she heard sweet music borne on the distant air, and presently saw his features glow with the mild rapture of a superior being. The strain seemed to swell louder, and she awoke. The vision was gone, but music yet came to her ear in strains such as angels might breathe. She doubted, listened, raised herself in the bed, and again listened. It was music, and not an illusion of her imagination. After a solemn, steady harmony it paused, then rose again in mournful sweetness and then died in a cadence that seemed to bear away the listening soul to heaven. She instantly remembered the music of the preceding night with the strange circumstances related by Lavoisin, and the affecting conversation it had led to concerning the state of departed spirits. All that Saint-Aubert had said on that subject now pressed upon her heart and overwhelmed it. What a change in a few hours. He who then could only conjecture was now made acquainted with truth, was himself become one of the departed. As she listened, she was chilled with superstitious awe. Her tears stopped and she rose and went to the window. All without was obscured in shade, but Emily turning her eyes from the massy darkness of the woods whose waving outline appeared on the horizon saw on the left that effulgent planet which the old man had pointed out setting over the woods. She remembered what he had said concerning it, and the music now coming at intervals on the air, she unclosed the casement to listen to the strains that soon gradually sunk to a greater distance and tried to discover whence they came. The obscurity prevented her from distinguishing any object on the green platform below and the sounds became fainter and fainter till they softened into silence. She listened, but they returned no more. Soon after, she observed the planet trembling between the fringed tops of the woods and in the next moment sink behind them. Chilled with a melancholy awe, she retired once more to her bed and at length forgot for a while her sorrows in sleep. On the following morning she was visited by a sister of the convent, who came with kind offices and a second invitation from the lady abbess. And Emily, though she could not forsake the cottage, while the remains of her father were still in it, consented, however painful such a visit must be, in the present state of her spirits, to pay her respects to the abbess in the evening. About an hour before sunset, la Voisin showed her the way through the woods to the convent, which stood in a small bay of the Mediterranean, crowned by a woody amphitheatre. And Emily, had she been less unhappy, would have admired the extensive sea view that appeared from the green slope in front of the edifice and the rich shores hung with woods and pastures that extended on either hand. But her thoughts were now occupied by one sad idea, and the features of nature were to her colorless and without form. The bell for vespers struck as she passed the ancient gate of the convent and seemed the funereal note for Saint-Aubert. Little incidents affect a mind enervated by sorrow. Emily struggled against the sickening faintness that came over her and was led into the presence of the abbess who received her with an air of maternal tenderness. An air of such gentle solicitude and consideration as touched her with an instantaneous gratitude. Her eyes were filled with tears, and the words she would have spoken faltered on her lips. The abbess led her to a seat and sat down beside her, still holding her hand and regarding her in silence, as Emily dried her tears and attempted to speak. Be composed, my daughter, said the abbess in a soothing voice. Do not speak yet, I know all you would say. Your spirits must be soothed. We are going to prayers. Will you attend our evening service? It is comfortable, my child, to look up in our afflictions to a father who sees and pities us, and who chastens in his mercy. Emily's tears flowed again, but a thousand sweet emotions mingled with them. The abbess suffered her to weep without interruption and watched over her with a look of benignity that might have characterized the countenance of a guardian angel. Emily, when she became tranquil, was encouraged to speak without reserve, and to mention the motive that made her unwilling to quit the cottage, which the abbess did not oppose even by a hint, but praised the filial piety of her conduct, and added a hope that she would pass a few days at the convent before she returned to La Vallée. You must allow yourself a little time to recover from your first shock, my daughter, before you encounter a second. I will not affect to conceal from you how much I know your heart must suffer on returning to the scene of your former happiness. Here you will have all that quiet and sympathy and religion can give to restore your spirits. But come, added she, observing the tears swell in Emily's eyes, we will go to the chapel. Emily followed to the parlour where the nuns were assembled, to whom the abbess committed her, saying, This is a daughter for whom I have much esteem. Be sisters to her. They passed on in a train to the chapel, where the solemn devotion with which the service was performed elevated her mind, and brought to it the comforts of faith and resignation. Twilight came on before the abbess's kindness would suffer Emily to depart, when she left the convent with a heart much lighter than she had entered it, and was reconducted by la voisin through the woods, the pensive gloom of which was in unison with the temper of her mind. And she pursued the little wild path in musing silence, till her guide suddenly stopped, looked round, and then struck out of the path into the high grass, saying he had mistaken the road. He now walked on quickly, and Emily, proceeding with difficulty over the obscured and uneven ground, was left at some distance, till her voice arrested him, who seemed unwilling to stop, and still hurried on. "'If you're in doubt about the way,' said Emily, "'had we not better inquire it at the chateau yonder between the trees?' "'No,' replied La Voisin, "'there is no occasion. "'When we reach that brook, mademoiselle,' You see the light upon the water there, beyond the woods. When we reach that brook, we shall be at home presently. I don't know how I happen to mistake the path. I seldom come this way after sunset. It is solitary enough, said Emily, but you have no banditti here. No, ma'amselle, no banditti. What are you afraid of then, my good friend? You are not superstitious. No, not superstitious. But, to tell you the truth, lady, nobody likes to go near that chateau after dusk. By whom is it inhabited, said Emily, that is so formidable? Why, mam'selle, it is scarcely inhabited, for our lord the Marquis, and the lord of all these fine woods, too, is dead. He had not once been in it for these many years, and his people, who have the care of it, live in a cottage close by. Emily now understood this to be the chateau which Lavoisin had formerly pointed out as having belonged to the Marquis Villeroy, on the mention of which her father had appeared so much affected. Ah, it is a desolate place now, continued Lavoisin, and such a grand, fine place as I remember it. Emily inquired what had occasioned this lamentable change. But the old man was silent, and Emily, whose interest was awakened by the fear he had expressed, and above all by a recollection of her father's agitation, repeated the question, and added, "'If you are neither afraid of the inhabitants, my good friend, nor are superstitious, how happens it that you dread to pass near that chateau in the dark?' "'Perhaps then I am a little superstitious, mademoiselle, and if you knew what I do, you might be so too.' Strange things have happened there. Monsieur, your good father, appeared to have known the late Marchioness. Pray inform me what did happen, said Emily with much emotion. Alas, mademoiselle, answered Lavoisin, inquire no further. It is not for me to lay open the domestic secrets of my lord. Emily, surprised by the old man's words and his manner of delivering them, forbore to repeat her question. A nearer interest, the remembrance of saint Aubert, occupied her thoughts, and she was led to recollect the music she heard on the preceding night, which she mentioned to la voisin. "'You was not alone, mademoiselle, in this,' he replied. "'I heard it too, but I have so often heard it at the same hour "'that I was scarcely surprised.' "'You doubtless believe this music to have some connection with the chateau,' said Emily suddenly and are therefore superstitious. It may be so, mademoiselle, but there are other circumstances belonging to that chateau which I remember, and sadly, too. A heavy sigh followed, but Emily's delicacy restrained the curiosity these words revived, and she inquired no further. On reaching the cottage, all the violence of her grief returned, It seemed as if she had escaped its heavy pressure only while she was removed from the object of it. She passed immediately to the chamber where the remains of her father were laid and yielded to all the anguish of hopeless grief. La voisin at length persuaded her to leave the room and she returned to her own where, exhausted by the sufferings of the day, she soon fell into a deep sleep and awoke considerably refreshed. When the dreadful hour arrived, in which the remains of Saint-Aubert were to be taken from her for ever, she went alone to the chamber to look upon his countenance yet once again. And la voisin, who had waited patiently below stairs, till her despair should subside, with the respect due to grief, forbore to interrupt the indulgence of it, till surprise at the length of her stay, and then apprehension, overcame his delicacy, and he went to lead her from the chamber. Having tapped gently at the door without receiving an answer, he listened attentively, but all was still. No sigh, no sob of anguish was heard. Yet more alarmed by this silence, he opened the door and found Emily lying senseless across the foot of the bed near which stood the coffin. His calls procured assistance and she was carried to her room where proper applications at length restored her. During her state of insensibility, Lavoisin had given directions for the coffin to be closed, and he succeeded in persuading Emily to forbear revisiting the chamber. She indeed felt herself unequal to this, and also perceived the necessity of sparing her spirits and recollecting fortitude sufficient to bear her through the approaching scene. Saint-Aubert had given a particular injunction that his remains should be interred in the church of the convent of Saint-Claire and in mentioning the north chancel near the ancient tomb of the ville had pointed out the exact spot where he wished to be laid. The superior had granted this place for the interment and thither therefore the sad procession now moved, which was met at the gates by the venerable priest, followed by a train of friars. Every person who heard the solemn chant of the anthem and the peal of the organ that struck up when the body entered the church, and saw also the feeble steps and the assumed tranquility of Emily, gave her involuntary tears. She shed none, but walked, her face partly shaded by a thin black veil between two persons who supported her, preceded by the abbess and followed by the nuns, whose plaintive voices mellowed the swelling harmony of the dirge. When the procession came to the grave, the music ceased. Emily drew the veil entirely over her face, and in a momentary pause between the anthem and the rest of the service, her sobs were distinctly audible. The Holy Father began the service, and Emily again commanded her feelings till the coffin was let down, and she heard the earth rattle on its lid. Then, as she shuddered, a groan burst from her heart, and she leaned for support on the person who stood next to her. In a few moments, she recovered, and when she heard those affecting and sublime words, his body is buried in peace, and his soul returns to him that gave it. Her anguish softened into tears. The abbess led her from the church into her own parlour, and there administered all the consolations that religion and gentle sympathy can give. Emily struggled against the pressure of grief, but the abbess, observing her attentively, ordered a bed to be prepared and recommended her to retire to repose. She also kindly claimed her promise to remain a few days at the convent, and Emily, who had no wish to return to the cottage, the scene of all her sufferings, had leisure, now that no immediate care, pressed upon her attention to feel the indisposition which disabled her from immediately traveling. Meanwhile, the maternal kindness of the abbess and the gentle attentions of the nuns did all that was possible towards soothing her spirits and restoring her health. But the latter was too deeply wounded through the medium of her mind to be quickly revived. She lingered for some weeks at the convent, under the influence of a slow fever, wishing to return home, yet unable to go thither, often even reluctant to leave the spot where her father's relics were deposited, and sometimes soothing herself with the consideration that if she died here, her remains would repose beside those of Saint-Aubert. In the meanwhile, she sent letters to Madame Chéron, and to the old housekeeper, informing them of the sad event that had taken place, and of her own situation. From her aunt she received an answer, abounding more in commonplace condolment than in trays of real sorrow, which assured her that a servant should be sent to conduct her to La Vallee, for that her own time was so much occupied by company that she had no leisure to undertake so long a journey. However, Emily might prefer La Vallée to Toulouse, she could not be insensible to the indecorous and unkind conduct of her aunt in suffering her to return thither where she had no longer a relation to console and protect her. A conduct which was the more culpable since Saint Aubert had appointed Madame Cheron the guardian of his orphan daughter. Madame Cheron's servant made the attendance of the good Lavoisin unnecessary and Emily, who felt sensibly her obligations to him for all his kind attention to her late father as well as to herself, was glad to spare him a long and what at his time of life must have been a troublesome journey. During her stay at the convent, the peace and sanctity that reigned within, the tranquil beauty of the scenery without, and the delicate attentions of the abbess and the nuns were circumstances so soothing to her mind that they almost tempted her to leave a world where she had lost her dearest friends and devote herself to the cloister in a spot rendered sacred to her by containing the tomb of Saint-Aubert. The pensive enthusiasm, too, so natural to her temper had spread a beautiful illusion over the sanctified retirement of a nun. It almost hid from her view the selfishness of its security. But the touches which a melancholy fancy, slightly tinctured with superstition, gave to the monastic scene, began to fade as her spirits revived, and brought once more to her heart an image which had only transiently been banished thence. By this she was silently awakened to hope and comfort and sweet affections, Visions of happiness gleamed faintly at a distance, and though she knew them to be illusions, she could not resolve to shut them out forever. It was the remembrance of Valancourt, of his taste, his genius, and of the countenance which glowed with both that perhaps alone determined her to return to the world. The grandeur and sublimity of the scenes amidst which they had first met had fascinated her fancy, and had imperceptibly contributed to render Valancourt more interesting by seeming to communicate to him somewhat of their own character. The esteem, too, which Saint-Aubert had repeatedly expressed for him sanctioned this kindness. But though his countenance and manner had continually expressed his admiration of her, he had not otherwise declared it. And even the hope of seeing him again was so distant. That she was scarcely conscious of it still less that it influenced her conduct on this occasion end of volume one chapter eight the first part recording by martin geeson in hazelmere surrey the mysteries of udolpho by anne radcliffe volume one Chapter to eight, continuation. It was several days after the arrival of Madame Chéron's servant, before Emily was sufficiently recovered to undertake the journey to La Vallée. On the evening preceding her departure, she went to the cottage to take leave of la voisin and his family, and to make them a return for their kindness. The old man she found sitting on a bench at his door, between his daughter and his son-in-law who was just returned from his daily labor and who was playing upon a pipe that in tone resembled an oboe. A flask of wine stood beside the old man and before him a small table with fruit and bread round which stood several of his grandsons, fine rosy children who were taking their supper as their mother distributed it. On the edge of the little green that spread before the cottage were cattle and a few sheep reposing under the trees. The landscape was touched with the mellow light of the evening sun, whose long slanting beams played through a vista of the woods and lighted up the distant turrets of the chateau. She paused a moment before she emerged from the shade to gaze upon the happy group before her on the complacency and ease of healthy age depicted on the countenance of la Voisin, the maternal tenderness of Agnes as she looked upon her children, and the innocency of infantine pleasures reflected in their smiles. Emily looked again at the venerable old man and at the cottage. The memory of her father rose with full force upon her mind, and she hastily stepped forward, afraid to trust herself with a longer pause. She took an affectionate and affecting leave of La Voisin and his family, she seemed to love her as his daughter and shed tears. Emily shed many. She avoided going into the cottage since she knew it would revive emotions such as she could not now endure. One painful scene yet awaited her for she determined to visit again her father's grave and that she might not be interrupted or observed in the indulgence of her melancholy tenderness, she deferred her visit till every inhabitant of the convent, except the nun who promised to bring her the key of the church, should be retired to rest. Emily remained in her chamber till she heard the convent bell strike 12, when the nun came as she had appointed with the key of a private door that opened into the church and they descended together the narrow, winding staircase that led thither. The nun offered to accompany Emily to the grave, adding, It is melancholy to go alone at this hour. But the former, thanking her for her consideration, could not consent to have any witness of his sorrow, and the sister, having unlocked the door, gave her the lamp. You will remember, sister, said she, that in the east aisle which you must pass is a newly opened grave. Hold the light to the ground that you may not stumble over the loose earth. Emily, thanking her again, took the lamp and stepping into the church, Sister Mariette departed. But Emily paused a moment at the door. A sudden fear came over her and she returned to the foot of the staircase. Whereas she heard the steps of the nun ascending, and while she held up the lamp, saw her black veil waving over the spiral balusters, she was tempted to call her back. While she hesitated, the veil disappeared, and in the next moment, ashamed of her fears, she returned to the church. The cold air of the aisles chilled her, and their deep silence and extent feebly shone upon by the moonlight that streamed through a distant gothic window would at any other time have awed her into superstition now grief occupied all her attention she scarcely heard the whispering echoes of her own steps or thought of the open grave till she found herself almost on its brink A friar of the convent had been buried there on the preceding evening and as she had sat alone in her chamber at twilight she heard at distance the monks chanting the requiem for his soul. This brought freshly to her memory the circumstances of her father's death, and as the voices, mingling with the low, querulous peal of the organ, swelled faintly, gloomy and affecting visions had arisen upon her mind. Now she remembered them, and turning aside to avoid the broken ground, These recollections made her pass on with quicker steps to the grave of Saint-Aubert. When in the moonlight that fell athwart a remote part of the aisle, she thought she saw a shadow gliding between the pillars. She stopped to listen, and not hearing any footstep, believed that her fancy had deceived her, and no longer apprehensive of being observed, proceeded. Saint-Aubert was buried beneath a plain marble, bearing little more than his name and the date of his birth and death near the foot of the stately monument of the Ville Roy. Emily remained at his grave till a chime that called the monks to early prayers warned her to retire. Then she wept over it a last farewell and forced herself from the spot. After this hour of melancholy indulgence, She was refreshed by a deeper sleep than she had experienced for a long time, and on awakening her mind was more tranquil and resigned than it had been since Saint-Aubert's death. But when the moment of her departure from the convent arrived, all her grief returned. The memory of the dead and the kindness of the living attached her to the place, and for the sacred spot where her father's remains were interred, she seemed to feel all those tender affections which we conceived for home. The abbess repeated many kind assurances of regard at their parting and pressed her to return if ever she should find her condition elsewhere unpleasant. Many of the nuns also expressed unaffected regret at her departure and Emily left the convent with many tears and followed by sincere wishes for her happiness. She had traveled several leagues before the scenes of the country through which she passed had power to rouse her for a moment from the deep melancholy into which she was sunk. And when they did, it was only to remind her that on her last view of them, Saint-Aubert was at her side, and to call up to her remembrance the remarks he had delivered on similar scenery. Thus, without any particular occurrence passed the day, in languor and dejection, She slept that night in a town on the skirts of Languedoc, and on the following morning entered Gascony. Towards the close of this day, Emily came within view of the plains in the neighbourhood of La Vallée, and the well-known objects of former times began to press upon her notice, and with them recollections that awakened all her tenderness and grief, often while she looked through her tears upon the wild grandeur of the Pyrenees, now varied with the rich lights and shadows of evening. She remembered that when she last saw them, her father partook with her of the pleasure they inspired. Suddenly, some scene which he had particularly pointed out to her would present itself, and the sick languor of despair would steal upon her heart. There, she would exclaim, there are the very cliffs, there the wood of pines which he looked at with such delight, as we passed this road together for the last time. There too, under the crag of that mountain, is the cottage, peeping from among the cedars, which he bade me remember and copy with my pencil. Oh, my father, shall I never see you more. As she drew near the chateau, these melancholy memorials of past times multiplied. At length, the chateau itself appeared, amid the glowing beauty of Saint-Aubert's favourite landscape. This was an object which called for fortitude, not for tears. Emily dried hers, and prepared to meet with calmness the trying moment of her return to that home where there was no longer a parent to welcome her. Yes, said she, let me not forget the lessons he has taught me. How often he has pointed out the necessity of resisting even virtuous sorrow. How often we have admired together the greatness of a mind that can at once suffer and reason. Oh my father, if you are permitted to look down upon your child, it will please you to see that she remembers and endeavours to practice the precepts you have given her. A turn on the road, now allotted a nearer view of the chateau. The chimneys tipped with light, rising from behind Saint-Aubert's favourite oaks, whose foliage partly concealed the lower part of the building. Emily could not suppress a heavy sigh. This too was his favourite hour, said she, as she gazed upon the long evening shadows stretched at the landscape. How deep the repose, how lovely the scene, lovely and tranquil as in former days. Again she resisted the pressure of sorrow, till her ear caught the gay melody of the dance, which she'd so often listened to as she walked with Saint-Aubert on the margin of the Garonne, where all her fortitude forsook her, and she continued to weep, till the carriage stopped at the little gate that opened upon what was now her own territory. She raised her eyes on the sudden stopping of the carriage and saw her father's old housekeeper coming to open the gate. Manchon also came running and barking before her, and when his young mistress alighted, fawned and played round her, gasping with joy. Dear Mamsel, said Teresa, and paused and looked as if she would have offered something of condolence to Emily, whose tears now prevented reply. The dog still fawned and ran round her, and then flew towards the carriage with a short, quick bark. "'Ah, mademoiselle, my poor master,' said Teresa, "'whose feelings were more awakened than her delicacy. "'Manchon's gone to look for him,' Emily sobbed aloud, "'and on looking towards the carriage, "'which still stood with the door open, "'saw the animal spring into it and instantly leap out, "'and then with his nose on the ground, run round the horses. "'Don't cry so, mademoiselle,' said Teresa. "'It breaks my heart to see you.' The dog now came running to Emily, then returned to the carriage, and then back again to her, whining and discontented. Poor rogue, said Teresa, thou hast lost thy master, thou mayst well cry. But come, my dear young lady, be comforted. What shall I get to refresh you? Emily gave her hand to the old servant and tried to restrain her grief, while she made some kind inquiries concerning her health but she still lingered in the walk which led to the chateau, for within was no person to meet her with the kiss of affection. Her own heart no longer palpitated with impatient joy to meet again the well-known smile, and she dreaded to see objects which would recall the full remembrance of her former happiness. She moved slowly towards the door, paused, went on and paused again. How silent, how forsaken, how forlorn did the chateau appear. Trembling to enter it, yet blaming herself for delaying what she could not avoid, she at length passed into the hall, crossed it with a hurried step, as if afraid to look round, and opened the door of that room which she was wont to call her own. The gloom of evening gave solemnity to its silent and deserted air. The chairs, the tables, every article of furniture so familiar to her in happier times, spoke eloquently to her heart. She seated herself, without immediately observing it, in a window which opened upon the garden and where Saint-Aubert had often sat with her, watching the sun retire from the rich and extensive prospect that appeared beyond the groves. Having indulged her tears for some time, she became more composed. And when Teresa, after seeing the baggage deposited in her lady's room, again appeared, she had so far recovered her spirit as to be able to converse with her. I have made up the green bed for you, mademoiselle, said Teresa as she set the coffee upon the table. I thought you would like it better than your own now, but I little thought this day month that you would come back alone. Ah, well-a-day! The news almost broke my heart when it did come. Who would have believed that my poor master, when he went from home, would never return again? Emily hid her face with her handkerchief and waved her hand. Do taste the coffee, said Teresa. My dear young lady, be comforted. We must all die. My dear master is a saint above. Emily took the handkerchief from her face and raised her eyes full of tears towards heaven. Soon after, she dried them. And in a calm but tremulous voice, began to inquire concerning some of her late father's pensioners. Alas, a day," said Teresa as she poured out the coffee, and handed it to her mistress. All that could come have been here every day to inquire after you and my master. She then proceeded to tell that some were dead, whom they had left well, and others who were ill had recovered. And see, mamselle,' added Teresa. There is old Mary coming up the garden now. She has looked every day these three years as if she would die, yet she is alive still. She has seen the chaise at the door and knows you are come home. The sight of this poor old woman would have been too much for Emily, and she begged Teresa would go and tell her that she was too ill to see any person that night. Tomorrow I shall be better perhaps, but give her this token of my remembrance. Emily sat for some time, given up to sorrow, not an object on which her eye glanced, but awakened some remembrance that led immediately to the subject of her grief. Her favorite plants, which Saint-Aubert had taught her to nurse, the little drawings that adorned the room which his taste had instructed her to execute, the books that he had selected for her use, which they had read together, her musical instruments, whose sounds he loved so well, and which he sometimes awakened himself. Every object gave new force to sorrow. At length she roused herself from this melancholy indulgence, and summoning all her resolution, stepped forward to go into those forlorn rooms, which though she dreaded to enter, she knew would yet more powerfully affect her if she delayed to visit them. Having passed through the greenhouse, her courage for a moment forsook her when she opened the door of the library. And perhaps the shade which evening and the foliage of the trees near the windows threw across the room heightened the solemnity of her feelings on entering that apartment where everything spoke of her father. There was an armchair in which she used to sit. She shrunk when she observed it. For she had so often seen him seated there, and the idea of him rose so distinctly to her mind that she almost fancied she saw him before her. But she checked the illusions of a distempered imagination, though she could not subdue a certain degree of awe which now mingled with her emotions. She walked slowly to the chair and seated herself in it, There was a reading desk before it on which lay a book open as it had been left by her father. It was some moments before she recovered courage enough to examine it, and when she looked at the open page, she immediately recollected that Saint-Aubert, on the evening before his departure from the chateau, had read to her some passages from this his favourite author. The circumstance now affected her extremely, She looked at the page, wept, and looked again. To her, the book appeared sacred and invaluable, and she would not have moved it or closed the page which she had left open for the treasures of the Indies. Still she sat before the desk and could not resolve to quit it, though the increasing gloom and the profound silence of the apartment revived a degree of painful awe. Her thoughts dwelt on the probable state of departed spirits, and she remembered the affecting conversation which had passed between Saint-Aubert and Lavoisin on the night preceding his death. As she mused, she saw the door slowly open, and a rustling sound in a remote part of the room startled her. Through the dusk, she thought she perceived something move. The subject she had been considering in the present tone of her spirits which made her imagination respond to every impression of the senses, gave her a sudden terror of something supernatural. She sat for a moment motionless, and then her dissipated reason returning. What should I fear? said she. If the spirits of those we love ever return to us, it is in kindness. The silence which again reigned made her ashamed of her late fears and she believed that her imagination had deluded her, or that she had heard one of those unaccountable noises which sometimes occur in old houses. The same sound, however, returned, and distinguishing something moving towards her, and in the next instant press beside her into the chair, she shrieked But her fleeting senses were instantly recalled on perceiving that it was Manchon who sat by her and who now licked her hands affectionately. Perceiving her spirits unequal to the task she had assigned herself of visiting the deserted rooms of the chateau this night, when she left the library, she walked into the garden and down to the terrace that overhung the river. The sun was now set, but under the dark branches of the almond trees was seen the saffron glow of the west, spreading beyond the twilight of middle air. The bat flitted silently by, and now and then the morning note of the nightingale was heard. The circumstances of the hour brought to her recollection some lines which she had once heard Saint-Aubert recite on this very spot, and she had now a melancholy pleasure in repeating them. Sonnet. Now the bat circles on the breeze of Eve that creeps in shuddering fits along the waves. And trembles mid the woods And through the cave Whose lonely sighs the wanderer deceive For oft when melancholy charms his mind He thinks the spirit of the rock he hears Nor listens but with sweetly thrilling fears To the low mystic murmurs of the wind Now the bat circles And the twilight dew falls silent round And o'er the mountain cliff the gleaming wave and far-discovered skiff spreads the grey veil of soft harmonious hue. So falls o'er grief the dew of pity's tear, dimming her lonely visions of despair. Emily, wandering on, came to Saint-Aubert's favorite plane tree, where so often at this hour they had sat beneath the shade together, and with her dear mother so often had conversed on the subject of a future state. How often, too, had her father expressed the comfort he derived from believing that they should meet in another world. Emily, overcome by these recollections, left the plane tree, and as she leaned pensively on the wall of the terrace, she observed a group of peasants dancing gaily on the banks of the Garonne which spread in broad expanse below and reflected the evening light. What a contrast they formed to the desolate, unhappy Emily. They were gay and debonair, as they were wont to be when she too was gay, when Saint-Aubert used to listen to their merry music with a countenance beaming pleasure and benevolence. Emily, having looked for a moment on this sprightly band, turned away, unable to bear the remembrances it excited. But where, alas, could she turn and not meet new objects to give acuteness to grief? As she walked slowly towards the house, she was met by Teresa. Dear Mamsel, said she, I have been seeking you up and down this half hour and was afraid some accident had happened to you. "'How can you like to wander about so in this night air? "'Do come into the house. "'Think what my poor master would have said if he could see you. "'I'm sure when my dear lady died, "'no gentleman could take it more to heart than he did. "'Yet you know he seldom shed a tear.' "'Pray, Theresa, cease,' said Emily, "'wishing to interrupt this ill-judged but well-meaning harangue. Teresa's loquacity, however, was not to be silenced so easily.' And when you used to grieve so, she added, he often told you how wrong it was, for that my mistress was happy. And if she was happy, I'm sure he is so too. For the prayers of the poor, they say, reach heaven. During this speech, Emily had walked silently into the chateau, and Teresa lighted her across the hall into the common sitting parlor, where she had laid the cloth with one solitary knife and fork for supper. Emily was in the room before she perceived that it was not her own apartment, but she checked the emotion which inclined her to leave it and seated herself quietly by the little supper table. Her father's hat hung on the opposite wall. While she gazed at it, a faintness came over her. Teresa looked at her and then at the object on which her eyes were settled and went to remove it. But Emily waved her hand. No, said she, let it remain. "'I'm going to my chamber.' "'Nay, mademoiselle, supper is ready.' "'I cannot take it,' replied Emily. "'I will go to my room and try to sleep. "'Tomorrow I shall be better.' "'This is poor doings,' said Theresa. "'Dear lady, do take some food. "'I've dressed a pheasant, and a fine one it is. "'Old monsieur Barrault sent it this morning, "'for I saw him yesterday and told him you were coming.' And I know nobody that seemed more concerned when he heard the sad news than he. Did he? said Emily in a tender voice, while she felt her poor heart warmed for a moment by a ray of sympathy. At length her spirits were entirely overcome, and she retired to her room. End of Volume 1, Chapter 8